Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. to have the conversation with you. I want to begin by uh, addressing our, our student body for a few minutes and letting them know a few things. First of all, I want to say to everybody, thank you for coming. It's really, uh, especially with the weather the way it is, we're glad that you're here. Second of all, I want to let you know that we received probably about 50 or 60 questions. Uh, so what I did is I tried to categorize these together, kind of lump them together. So for our, our congregation that's here today, your specific question may not be asked, but try to listen for the general theme of what was asked because that will help quite a bit. And then uh, third, I just wanted to take a few minutes here to get us started. One of the things that we do at the casual conversations is we try to jump into the mainstream of some big conversation that's happening in culture. But because we're trying to do a biblically and theologically sound foundation for that, what we want to do is take a few minutes at the beginning of each, if possible, to kind of lay out a theological foundation. And what I've done with the, the folks that are gathered here today, we handed out actually the outline that I wanted to use. So for those of you who are participating today in our congregation, Keep in mind that that's a real bare-bones outline, and all I'm going to do with that is run through it very quickly so that at some point in the future, if you wanted to have a sermon preparation or something, this could be a backbone, basically, for that sort of thing. But for us, this will serve as a foundation to kind of get us started. So let me just take a few minutes. There's a little bit of a PowerPoint with this that will help some of the folks follow along on this. So first thing I want to say is that what we have to have this conversation, we need to think about starting from a theological and biblical point of view so that we have our primary source of authority in place. In other words, we don't want to come with just opinions. And, and unfortunately, in this particular issue, it's heavily charged with opinions, and we want to have a place to have a standard for that. So the first thing, A.W. Tozer made this comment. He said, a right con conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship when the fa what the foundation is to the temple, and where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. So I believe there's scarcely an error in doctrine or failure in applying Christian ethics, and we could say with that, and also this discussion of race, that cannot be finally traced to imperfect or ignoble thoughts about God. And so what we want to do is we want to take all of our thoughts and bring them under the Lordship of Christ. And this issue, we're going to have to do that on that. So one of the good ways to do that is to start simply with a theological paradigm called creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So quickly to work through that, if you start with the creation mentality in Genesis 1.27, something very important happens in that text. The Lord says he creates human beings as image bearers, and he decides to make them male and female. And from that text of Scripture, what I would say to us is that, first off, the only line of demarcation that the Lord makes in that passage of Scripture is male and female. In other words, it seems that God really cares about maleness and femaleness, and that's why from the beginning in Genesis we can speak to the homosexual discussion in our culture. But he doesn't make a distinction between fat or skinny, tall or short, blonde or brunette, white or black. So this seems to be something rather that God's celebrating some of his differences as opposed to making lines of demarcation. Indeed, what's, what's interesting, if you follow this up in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 tells us that it's from one blood that all human beings come forth in that. So it's almost at that point we would have to say this question of racism is, is not even titled correctly. There's one race. What there are are ethnicities and their cultural differences, but for us to even use the language of racism seems to be a little bit odd. That's a creation point. A fall point is that basically human beings have sinned. Genesis 3 tells us we've fallen short of the, or actually that all have sinned. Uh, Romans 3.23 then tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because of this, humans are not only alienated from God, they're alienated from one another. And that's where we find these distinctions starting to come into play there. So the redemption tells us Jesus Christ is the free gift in eternal life. Uh, comes through him and so we have then in Galatians chapter 3 this beautiful passage that tells us that we ha all come to the cross equal there's no distinction between male or female there's no distinction between white or black Jew and Gentile we all come to the cross together on that now under this point and for those of who are in our congregation today I want to make a, a, 
a really important, what I believe a very important marking note from Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it tells us that all human beings who are born are under the blood of Adam. But then it goes on in verses 15 through 19 to tell that those who are new creations in Christ are actually now under the blood of Christ. So if you want to talk about two races ever, then the proper way to talk about two races are those who are outside of Christ under the blood of Adam and those who are in the blood of Christ. So if we are then believers together, then we can say, yo, blood, what's up? And we really mean that that means together we are under the one blood of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a real important thing for us as we move forward in restoration then. Then the church is by definition those who are under the one blood of Christ. And we then become brothers and sisters regardless of the tone of our skin color, regardless of how much melanin is in our skin, then that becomes something we find oneness on. At the end of the day, Revelation 5.9 says this. Here's the verse. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so, folks, for all of us, here's kind of the, the jump-off part in the conversation is this last comment. We're, we are dishonoring the blood if we do not unite around the common purpose and mission of Christ. In other words, we're not really after unity what we're after is a common unity in following the person of Christ and his mission. And it's within that that we come together on there. So, so let me stop right there and just kick off to you all, really for any of you, if you want to respond to anything I've just said. And then I've got a series of questions that we'll, we'll engage with the students from that point forward. So any initial thoughts in response to that as we get going? Well, Mark, I'd just say this. Ultimately, uh, kingdom diversity is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. And one of the reasons I think we've come together on this with such um, conviction is that to deny what you've just shared is, in essence, to attack the gospel. And it filters down into our churches. There's some things in our churches that are negotiable. I would spill my blood over. There are other issues that will actually impair the proclamation and the understanding of the gospel. And racism itself, as it is commonly understood, is an attack on the gospel. And therefore, it's not something we can negotiate. Uh, it's something we have to face head on and recognize that uh, there's going to be opposition, but it's opposition that we have to take on because our oneness in Christ is at stake. Okay, so when you say it's an attack on the gospel, it's that very Ephesians idea that, that we've all come under the blood of Christ and therefore... There shouldn't be any distinction. And once we say that there is, we're saying the blood of Christ doesn't apply equally. Just as Jesus broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, he's broken down the barrier in our context between black and white. Yeah. We're all one in him. Okay. Walter, do you see the guys want to come? Well, I would just like to add a little bit onto that as well. Uh, if we don't see that the gospel is powerful enough, or if we don't actually act like it's powerful enough to uh, jump this divide that our society has put up, then that's a testimony of the, uh, to the world about what we believe the gospel actually is. And so if we actually believe the gospel is capable of doing this, we, we need to trust in the power of the gospel to do its work and to unite us. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Anything here? Yeah, um, I think also about how, adding to what everybody said, the possibility for somebody to walk closely with the Lord um, and still walk in ignorance to this and need almost as though it were a divine encounter with the God who blows their former paradigms. I think about Peter uh, before he engaged Cornelius. And as much as God was working on him, he still was ignorant of the fact that God is not partial to races, Jew or Gentile, or categories of people who inherently have something different. Uh, but it took as though it were the dropping of a sheet in God to completely blow his mind with Peter, I've been saying this, but now I'm getting ready to really thrust you forward into a whole new paradigm. I made them all. They're all mine. And everyone who comes under that one blood that you were mentioning this, through this gospel stream uh, becomes mine. And so, again, I just want to affirm people who sometimes we struggle with. How could they believe the gospel and be so ignorant to what the gospel clearly says? And I think it's, we see with Peter that sometimes it is progressive for all of us and we grow in our understanding and our appreciation of it. And Excellent. you know, even on that, later he messed up again down there in Galatia. Galatia and had absolutely. to be rebuked again. So he was 
moving, in, and, and that's good for me because I often struggle. How can one be a racist and be a Christian? And sometimes I, I want to say, well, they obviously aren't. Right. But Peter was a follower of Jesus, and up until Acts 10, he was a racist. <laughs> and then even after Acts 10, he still struggled with it, as Galatians 2 much clearer. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. At least will motivate me to be willing to extend grace in this issue, not compromise conviction, but recognize people are along different paths on the journey. And if they're moving in the right direction, okay, mm-hmm. I, I, we can work with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah one, one 45-minute discussion isn't going to change a couple hundred years of the trajectories of what we've been raised in, but we can start fighting it and working at it really good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, let me start with a couple real mundane questions. This is a simple one, but... I was chatting with Walter about this on the way over. In some ways, I'm almost a little embarrassed to ask it, but it's, it's good for all the folks with lighter skin in the room to kind of hear your guys' thoughts on this. So here's the question. Starting right off the bat, when a person of lighter skin, someone who has less melanin, sometimes we call it a white guy, okay? When a white guy's talking to a guy with more melanin or a black guy, what's the best way to address that person? Are you an African-American? Are you a black dude? Are you a man of color? How do we, what's the best way to, to start off that conversation? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take it, my I'm man. Take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if I could just start. Um, so it depends on wh- what your background is and what those terms connote for you. Uh, so let's just say me. Um, very secure in my ethnicity, very secure in the ability for people of different ethnicities to love me for who I am, not discriminate, while at the same time experiencing various degrees of discrimination. Uh, But when you or somebody with a lighter skin tone addresses me by their term, it'll let me know something about them and less about me. It lets me know. If they say you're you're African-American, it's more of a formal declaration of what my ethnicity is, and it shows me that they're thinking on a more formal level. They're probably uh, trying to be very, very careful about how they uh, connect with me. If they say black, I sense a, a form of comfort in them because they're just going to, come on, you know what I mean, black. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and one of the things that I notice is uh, there's a way to say black in a way that lets me know that you're saying it in a way that's sort of undercutting me. Hey, what's up, black man? You know, if you say it like that, I'm going to think differently than if you say, no, because you is my black brother. And I'm going to take it differently. See what I'm saying? But anyway, uh, you know, I would say if, you know, black, African-American, man of color, so long as it's, as it's said with respect, you know. Uh, I mean, which, which Deuce was kind of alluding to that. If you say, oh, yeah, I was a black dude, you know, you know the store got robbed. And, you know, so, I mean, there, there's, but you know what I'm saying? There, there's a way that you can say it that connotes disrespect and a way that you can say things that connotes respect. And so it, it really doesn't matter to me so long as it's respectful. Well, well, that's helpful because I know for me, I want to honor my black brothers. And so mm-hmm. I don't want to be offensive. And yeah, sometimes... Yeah. Those of us who are white, we want to do the right thing. Exactly. We just don't know how. Mm. Part of it is our upbringing. Part of it is our culture. And so that's helpful to know that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess if we get pushed back, there's a way to navigate that and get the conversation mm-hmm. moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even a couple of days ago, you and I had a discussion about how to even talk about Kenan diversity and things related right. to it. And to be, to be honest with you, <clears throat> although we can start splitting hairs about different terms and what it historically means, but... In essence, if we understand that you're talking out of a heart of love and, com- and compassion and for the sake of the gospel, I, I really think that can really, um, I see what your intention is and not necessarily what I might assume is coming behind a word if it's misplaced. In other words, when you get to know people and you know they love you, yeah. you're naturally going to give a benefit of the doubt. Exactly. And that helps us move forward together. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right, good. Let me jump in a little bit further with a, another question. Currently, we have an African-American president. More formal there in the way I address that. And we also have an African-American man who's president of, this, of the Southern Baptist Convention. So let's jump ahead, let's say, three years. We could do this randomly. It doesn't matter the number of years. But let's say three years from now, we have a white president of the United States again. And we have a white president of the Southern Baptist Convention again. Tell me what you hope will be different underneath the surface now that we've had these two men leading these two large organizations uh, during the, this time. What, what do you hope will, will be the long-term difference? In other words, what we want to avoid 
is perhaps this token black president, token black uh, president of the SBC, and, or the flash in the pan mentality. What do you guys hope will be different? Maybe how can we, how can we move in that direction? Yeah, <laughs> we're all looking around. Uh, I'll start talking, then we can correct me when I'm done. But um, to be honest with you, I hope that this is an opportunity for the African-American voice to be mainstreamed into our denomination and mainstreamed into the national dialogue. Um, so after this, I would hope that, um, especially in our denomination, that the African-American voice is more likely to be heard more often. Um, from people who are in executive level leadership in whatever organization, in our denomination, in our seminaries, and so on and so forth. So essentially, our culture says that people who are at the very top of organizational structures don't have to listen to, to people on the bottom. You know, mm. But what I would hope that we would do is take the example of Christ and humble ourselves and consider others, as we see in, in Philippians 2, and we would give ear to the single mom. We would give ear to the first you know, generation immigrant, even from the purchase of the top of these organizational structures that uh, are in our nation or in our church or denomination or what have you. Excellent. Excellent. Mark, I see it as kind of a, a wedge getting in, uh, or if you like, the, the camel finally getting his nose under the tent, so that my hope is uh, when I move off the scene a decade from now or 20 years from now, whatever the Lord gives me, uh, having an African-American a black man as president of the SBC would even be something we think about. You don't think about today in the NBA whether the coach is black or white. That day's done. You don't even think about it. If you were to ask me right now uh, how many NBA coaches are of what ethnicity, I don't know. I don't think anybody really cares. It is a shame that they got there before we did, but it's just now uh, not even an issue. Now, it is still an issue when it comes to football, especially uh, in uh, both the NFL and uh, football in the South. Uh, I'm hoping there'll come a day when, again, we don't even think about it. And if we can get there in our convention of churches where not just whether it's a black man or a white man, but someone who's Hispanic or someone who's Asian, then we've made great progress and we've allowed, as Walter said earlier, the gospel actually to shine in all of its glory and brilliance so that we're not... Um, we're not having to look for people. We're not questioning things. It's just who we are. It's become family. You want to jump in on that? Answer. All right. So let me, let me uh, Danny, let me press you on that a little bit by going in this direction. Do you think, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this too. It would be helpful for all this. Do you think that for predominantly white seminary, historically that's who Southeastern has been, uh, as well as for predominantly white congregations, and entire convention. Um, do you think it's going to be tough to shift to having black pastors and black professors for those who've historically come to the seminary? Talk to us a little bit about what might need to happen among our, our congregants, our seminary students. Let's say that all of a sudden, if we could, we blink forward a decade and 40% and of our, our faculty is now our, our men of, of color. Uh, men and women of color, depending on which uh, discipline on that. What do we want to communicate to our students about that? Well, I don't think it's going to be tough. I think it'll be a challenge because I think a lot of this is generational. And again, I'm kind of a, a tweener. I'm 57, so I can look to my grandparents and my parents. But I, but I was blessed there, by the way. If a quick, quick story. My grandfather was a farmer. The next farm over was a farm that... Uh, black people lived on. I used to run back and forth between houses. I played with the children over there. The, the mother, uh, I called her Aunt Lorene, uh, hugged on me, loved on me. In fact, one of the most, uh, and this probably has impacted my thinking here, one of the most traumatic events of my life was when my granddaddy died. And Aunt Lorene came over and brought food, but she would not come in the house. And I asked my mama, I said, why, why will she, because I went out, hugged her, she loved on me. I said, why won't she come in the house? And she said, well, there's some of the family here that don't think that's right. And I nearly, I mean, I went ballistic. And I said, well, they ought to get their butts out of the house and let her get in there, because I like her a lot more than I like them. And, uh, she, you know, you know and, but, uh, but it just hit me, what, what's the deal? They had lived next to each other for several generations. They loved each other. They 
talked to each other. They helped each other. Mm. So seeing that in my grandparents and in my mom at least had me moving in the right direction. Then just to be brutally honest, when integration took place, I was in the fifth grade. And so blacks and whites began to go to school together. Well, and this may sound silly, but the brothers could play ball. The brothers could play ball. And so we got on the, on the playground. I didn't give a rip what color your skin was. I wanted the dude that could hit the ball, and I wanted the dude that could catch and run with the ball. And so for me, it just became natural that these were the guys that I wanted to be with and found out, you know what, they're just like me, and we could cut up and have fun and everything. So all of that to say this generation is a lot more oriented in that direction, and I'm pretty convinced they will embrace it. The, the issue is we're still in a time, unfortunately, where among evangelicals, the pool of finding African Americans who have a Ph.D. and that are evangelically oriented is small. But by God's good grace, it's growing. Amen. Here sits Walter, who's about to finish a Ph.D. Deuce is coming here to do a Ph.D. with us. That day will change over the next decade or so, and as that pool uh, gets larger, I have no doubt at all, I have no doubt at all that those who lead our seminaries in particular will be aggressive in trying to pursue men of color to come and be a part of the faculty. I have no reason to think our student body will not readily embrace that. And as that's reflective of the faculty, I have every reason to believe it will be more reflective of the student body as well. Now, I'm going to press back a little bit on that just because of my own discussion with Deuce that we had the other day. And Deuce, jump in on this, but... I remember very distinctly in my 20s wondering if I would have any issues if my pastor was black. I remember very specifically the day when I had to address that in my own mind and say, I think I have roots of bigotry that I didn't know were there. Because like you, I grew up as a tweener, and so for me it was something that I, I, I always hated racism. But then when it started to be that question, I started to wonder, I wonder if somehow I would be harboring something underneath. And that's, I'd even love our, our congregants here today and people who may be listening on the Internet. If you're predominantly from a black congregation, would it be hard for you to have a white pastor? And if you're predominantly from a, a white congregation and have been all of your life, would it be tough to have a, a black pastor? So, Deuce, you and I yeah. were chatting about it. You, you are at Imago Day, and you've preached there a couple times. Yeah, share with me. Yeah, with yeah. well, let, let me just say this. <clears throat> So one of the things that, you know, the African-American community will often talk about is how what we have always had to do has always been optional for you. So, um, so for whites, they've never, they can choose whether or not they're going to intersect with, you know, with people from other ethnicities a, a lot of times. Uh, especially if you operate within a certain class, a higher class, uh, it's even more of an option. Um, every now and then the winds of providence force the issue, such as integration, which forced the issue and was resisted. But, and every now and then, you know, somebody's skill level will force the issue from a monetary standpoint. So, but, and once one person gets over, people begin to realize that my bigotry or my prejudice is really unfounded. Um, and so what I would say is on that issue, um, Jesus said something to the, the rich man who died and who said, let me go back and tell my family that this stuff is true. He said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe that, they won't believe if somebody comes back from the dead. So I believe there's a sense in which we all, especially as Christians, are continuing to hope that as we faithfully exposit, faithfully uh, reveal the word of God that that's enough to change our minds by the spirit of God change our hearts and we can lead a nation that needs these other things to believe they may not believe it based on scripture they need encounters that are positive they need things thrust upon them we need it sometimes too but basically the Bible teaches that God says it that should be enough some of this stuff is just the way we are accustomed to being uh, and so I was sharing with you um, as somebody who even gets to preach, I'm allowed, because we were talking about, well, if we want more integration, you have to allow people of different ethnicities to occupy seats of power or places of position. One of them is the pulpit within the church. Well, we're still new to this, even at the church that I'm at. Uh, and so what ended up happening was sometimes I get out of the pulpit and I say, now I wonder if I'm, I'm primarily entertaining, if I'm primarily funny, if I'm primarily novel, or if 
they can receive me as actually doing the exact same thing the other people are doing, and that is being nutritional, uh, being biblically uh, on point, uh, being uh, theologically substantive. And so I've, I've even wrestled with that, you know, getting back and saying, Bay, do they just think, you know what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm snazzy, or do they think, yo, this dude is bringing it, you know, in the way I would say it, yo, this dude is bringing it, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so the bottom line is, I believe that it's going to be tough for people, because I think they're so used to, you know, sort of categorizing and departmentali- compartmentalizing how they view a person, you know, people come to me and say, man, I like you, man, you're funny, you know what I'm saying? But I'm like, but you know, I, 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 I don't prepare to be funny. Yeah. I prepare in this circle to be substantive, to be weighty, so that you walk away and say, yo, he's weighty. And I'll say this is the last thing. One student commented on your class, and they said, this is one of the top classes I've been in here. Now, I did my heart good because I didn't want it to be like, that was the funnest class, or that was something else that's all right. But, you know, from an African-American standpoint, we, want, we know we've arrived when you take us seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no distinction in the things that matter most. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. You want to jump in on that at all? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I just want to underscore what Deuce was saying in that uh, when we can actually be accepted as those who are bringing uh, intellectual development, are bringing um, substantive, thing, substantive things in the conversation, and not just having the Snickers when we use vernacular that's not typical in the, in the culture that we're in. And so, I mean, I think long-term that we're getting there. I think we'll be able to have uh, people who, like, for example, Robert Smith, he'll come to the chapel and he'll bring it, right? But Big time. And he'll actually be exegeting the text in the stylistic trappings that he normally goes about his business in. But after the chapel, people are talking about, oh, did you hear how he said this? Or you see, you know, all those phrases that he was turning. And it's more about the style as opposed to the substance, even though he was bringing the substance. And so um, I would hope that when a K. Marshall Williams or Robert Smith or even my man Deuce, who can bring it, uh, is here in the chapel or in churches that are predominantly of a different uh, ethnicity or race, that um, it's the content that's the, the barometer of the value as opposed to the trappings. But tra- trappings are good. They're, they're there. They're supposed to be there. They're, they're, they're um, a part of what it means to be human, that we do things differently, but we have that, that centrality on the, on the person Excellent. and work of Christ. Excellent. And so, But if we can start talking about the essentials, then talk about, but I like how he did that too. I think that's where we know that we're, that we're moving Excellent. in the right direction. Well, I've got to say one thing that's encouraging for everyone in this context, this new commentary series that uh, Tony Marita, myself, and David Platt are editing Christ-centered exposition over the whole Bible, there are at least seven uh, African-American right. brothers that are contributing to it. And the reason we sought them out was not because they're great pulpiteers, which all of them are, but they have great minds, they are godly, and they know how to rightly handle the Word. And so they're going to be writing. So their giftedness as an orator isn't going to come through in a book but their ability to handle the word well in terms of exposition and theology will be there. And we were delighted and didn't hesitate to invite these men uh, to be a part of this series. Excellent. 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 Good. Excellent. All right. We're on question two. <laughs> no, it's good. Good, good conversation. So let me press in on this, on this particular angle because it also relates to similar themes here. So let's say there's a, uh, folks who are, let's say, either here today or listening who are, are people of color, who have more melanin in their skin. They're used to a predominantly black congregation, and they're thinking about whether or not they should be Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists have a history that's pretty checkered. We've not been really good with, in, not only in our, origin, uh, or, uh, our origination, I got that word wrong every time I said it the last time I was here, as well as uh, in the Civil Rights Movement, we didn't do all that good of a job. So why would someone want to join the Southern Baptists now um, and be a part of that. And then the follow-up question I was going to ask you guys to think of, so you can couple them together if you will, if you want to. I have a, uh, some friends here at the school, I'll leave them unnamed, but who, have, who are, are, are uh, African-American, who have said it's difficult to be here at Southeastern. So help us understand both of those questions. How do we think about why would someone who's a person of color join the Southern Baptist Convention and then in particular, why might it be hard for them to be here so those of us who are here can help move in the direction to make it less difficult? Uh, just to start, I think that what can be said of 
people who were without Christ and who are not in Christ, we can say that we once were something. That's what Paul says of us. You once were this. You once were that. I think that the Lord can do the same thing to a denomination or an institution as well. And so, um, you know, I can say the Southern Baptist Convention once was, and I can fill in the blanks with things, but I can say that today, this is where we find ourselves. And like we said before, we can be uh, excited about the fact that there's progress. It's not just the fact that culture is changing and therefore we're meandering along, you know, behind the culture to, to be more open to different people of different races. But I think that, especially in this institution, Southeastern Seminary and College, that we're proactively taking steps towards being more like the gospel has given us the ability to be. And that's just showing the uh, multifaceted uh, power of the gospel to redeem people from all cultures, all backgrounds, and so on and so forth. So um, I would say that to, say, you know, to people who are kind of naysayers about what it means to be a Southern Baptist uh, as, a, as a black man or as a person of color. And then as far as you know, being at Southeastern, why is that hard at times? I think one is this, there's a culture that comes with Southeastern. And so uh, people come from different backgrounds. They're just having to kind of not be in their home culture in a sense. And so there's just some trappings that, that, are happen, that have to be dealt with. But on, on an under-the-surface level, I think that there's uh, something that we're addressing now as a, as a faculty is that most of the time, because our faculty is predominantly Caucasian, predominantly male, is that the questions that each discipline is applied to comes from the perspective of the person who's answering the questions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, in a sense, when you come to Southeastern, I'm getting, let's just say, like a metric set of tools to go out and do ministry with. But I might be going to a non-metric context. You see what I'm saying? And so, in order to take that extra step and contextualize the gospel uh, in a culture that I might come from or in a different culture, if we're going to a culture that's not the dominant culture here at Southeastern, it takes an extra step to be able to apply what we're learning into those contexts. But I'm glad to say that here at Southeastern, we're addressing that issue in a a bunch of different ways uh, with hiring a multicultural faculty, uh, you know, the the addition of courses that are addressing issues, but also the most profound and the most audacious is to try to equip the faculty to actually um, facilitate a multicultural learning situation. And so, and we're doing that through a bunch of ways that we can talk about it. I'll let you guys time. answer it, but let me just press in real quick on that mm-hmm. particular thought. So I'm an ethics professor, <clears throat> and I teach, and it's my personal opinion, and one of the greatest pieces of American literature is the letter from a Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> wrote on that. So to kind of give a rubber to the road with what you just said, as an ethics teacher, I need to bring that into my classroom and have my students reading that because it's such an important piece of literature, but it's such an important ethics piece. It's so and if, if my students leave here having never read that, I've done them a disservice. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think about this until I was in my 30s because I'm predominantly a white dude trying to teach mm-hmm. in a context where I've not had to think about that. So that's kind of what you're after. Is that this is really a challenge for our faculty. Yeah, yeah, it is. To I mean, expand and, themselves. And, you know, and I would say this kind of like my comment about the presidents of the SBC in America is that the African-American voice or the, the other voice will be able to enter in the conversation and be there. Because, you know, I don't expect you to know everything. You're, you're finite, I'm finite. But what we can do is come together in, that, in the dialogue with one to another. When, you know, we have, you know, our Hispanic brothers. We have women. We have, uh, you know, and the list goes on of believers that we can bring to the table. When we are all around the table with a sense of equity, we can essentially lose some of our finiteness. And so, um, and, and I think that's what we're going after here at this school. Guys, you want to jump in? Go ahead. Uh, no, no. I, I just say a quick thing. Somebody asked me that question. I would say, well, number one, in 1995, as a convention of churches, we apologized to our black brothers and sisters for our racist past, and we asked them to forgive us. And that resolution passed 98%. Uh, I wish it had been 100, but it was overwhelming. Secondly, the only area right now where the SBC is growing is in ethnic fellowships. The white churches are plateaued and in decline. We are growing in Hispanic fellowships, Asian fellowships, and African American fellowships. And I think that's happening because, one, we want to welcome in those brothers and sisters, and at least at the top where the leadership is in our denomination, 
those that God has providentially placed here. I don't know one of my colleagues that is not also 100% on board with what we're trying to do here at Southeastern. So from the top, filtering down, you've got an orientation in this direction. So there are a couple of things right there that are very tangible and concrete. Do we think we've arrived? No, that's one of the reasons we're having this conversation. We know as white brothers and sisters in Christ, we do have blinders. We don't see everything. We need our African-American brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters. In fact, a few years ago, Lifeway did a VBS thing that had an Asian theme that was extremely offensive to uh, Asians. And as a result of that, Jimmy Draper uh, apologized. We're sorry. We didn't mean to do this. Took it off. We won't do this again. It was painful, but we learned. And as we move forward, we're gaining ground. We're gaining ground. And so all of that, I would say, is good. And then I'd say this. We need your help. Uh, can we do some things for you? Yes, that's one of the geniuses of how the SBC works. But you can help us. We need you, and we want you. And I would say to them, that's our future orientation. Good. And I don't know if you want to hit another question, or this, uh, but I will say, uh, so... My personal encounter with SBC is on two fronts, um, a church plant that I was a part of, and now this uh, seminary, even invitation. Um, and what we can honestly say is we keep seeing that there is a fruit is being born with repentance. There are these, these tangibles. It's the repentance is not merely the resolution. It's the resolution, and it's so much more. And so we continue to uh, advocate for, you know, the other ethnicities being as gracious toward our brothers as we want them toward us. All of us, as my father would say, cut the fool. Um, but we need somebody to not, you know, chain us to those, those, you know, those actions and to be willing to, you know, receive our attempts to demonstrate that we're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So I know that that's the case. Uh, and... I just think that we also have to continue to reform our reformed minds, you know. We have to continue to have our minds transformed by the renewing of our mind continually. And that means reincorporating or incorporating new encounters and new principles into what we think is already. I'm already not a racist, but, you know, but there's still things that need to be uh, worked on. And I, you know, we're not reverse racist, but there's still some, you know what I'm saying, some jadedness and some bitterness that sometimes comes from people who've been the victims of it that are, cause us to reverse it. So, again, I think what everyone is saying is, is, is spot on. And, okay. Mark, we can't change our past. Would to right. God that we could. But we can do something about our present and our future. Yes. And I do think that that's our goal, to be a different people mm -hmm. today and certainly in the future. And again, we need the help of other ethnicities to allow us to become what we really believe God has redeemed us to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a couple of the questions that came in related to this. Danny, just a few moments ago, you talked about how the Southern Baptist Convention apologized. And I asked you two guys this privately the other day. How do you handle, you two men, how do you handle... When a guy like me, let's say I come up to Walter and I say, Walter, on behalf of my race, even though I wasn't a slaveholder and even though I work as hard as I possibly can to not be racist, I want to apologize for what's going on in the past. How does that make brothers like you guys feel? Um, <laughs> it, okay, I would say this. It, it seems as though with the emphasis on the past that it really locks the effects of slavery and racism and prejudice and segregation in the past. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's not acknowledging the reality that there's some residue in society that is still from that, that we're still having to grapple with. And they're almost excusing themselves from having to deal with the situation because they're sorry, which, I mean, and I'm not saying that, that people aren't sorry, but, uh, and, I, and I truly appreciate the, uh, the humility that for someone to come up and, and apologize but my, that's my fear, is that it's locking all the ills of the inequities of race in the past as opposed to us having to continually have to kind of re reform the reformed mind. And so I, so, that, so that's it's kind of good, but not enough. Not enough. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And I think that's helpful because I don't think we've arrived when we say, well, we're sorry. Now, y'all forgive us and everything's good and we move on. No, everything isn't good. 
And that was in 1995, so we are significantly removed by that almost 20 years. Have we made uh, gains? Yes. Are we even close to being where we need to be? No. Fred Luter, when he was here, told us in a smaller meeting, a little simple story where he was invited to preach up in an area, I think it was in Kentucky, it could have been here, it doesn't matter. And he said, you know, they received me so well, they loved me, they told me how glad they were that I had come to preach there. And then he said this, I knew when I left they were happy for me to preach there, but they would not be happy for me to join their churches. He said that was very evident. And Fred is one of the most kind, gracious, I'll give almost the devil the benefit of the doubt persons you'll ever meet. But for him to still sense that informs me, yeah, we've made some progress, but we still have a long ways to go. And so simply apologizing, I could not agree more, Walter. If that's all you do, you've probably done something that in the long run <clears throat> is more hurtful than helpful. Uh, and I will say one thing from our perspective as well. Sometimes I do wonder, so what is it going to take for, you know, us to release people? Come up like, man, I just want to apologize for what? And it almost seems like since that isn't enough, some people will reject, like you said, they, they won't be gracious for just a recognition of their solidarity, uh, even if it's in perception of being part of those who did it. Uh, so I, sometimes I do look at my own people. I'm like, man, like, what's it going to take for us to stop being mad uh, at this person who's been kind to you that still sees themselves as having some sort of, you know, corporate identity with the people who actually directly committed it? Uh, so I think we also have to be careful that we don't take advantage of the guilt that continues to hover over people who clearly want to walk in freedom. None of us like to be chained by the guilt of whether we did what we did directly or indirectly. And it's actually the gospel that has demonstrated that only we can free people up who are in bondage by the, the, their own guilt because we can say the Lord meant, I mean, you meant it for evil, let's just say, whoever the you is, but the Lord meant it for good. Uh, that he could work his salvific purposes out and give himself glory. So we know that God is able to release people, and he's been good to us anyway. And he's brought us, uh, as, as they say, a mighty long way. And so we need to be able to free people up. And then to me, make the first move uh, by diffusing the fears, letting people know that they don't have to feel awkward because you're already forgiven anyway. You're forgiven uh, preemptively I'm, I'm forgiving you before you even prove you're worthy of forgiveness mm-hmm. only the gospel can really free us up to do it uh, but I believe that there are some tangible things we're encountering that add more impetus for us to free up but some of us like the fact that we can take advantage of people who feel guilty and we have to be honest with that and avoid that and Mark let me say this to the folks that are here and listening especially to our black brothers and sisters you mentioned the young man that said it's uncomfortable being here. Tell us why. Right. Yeah. I, I want them to know they have an open door to me, to you, to our faculty. Tell us what we are doing that makes you feel uncomfortable, that may make you feel like you're being uh, tolerated but not embraced, and help us. Yeah. Because sometimes we want to do the. I hope all the time, but we want to do the right thing, but sometimes we don't know. Right. And so that's why it's great to have dear friends uh, like Deuce and Walter here that are, are dear friends to me that can say, look, I know you didn't intend X, but it hit us like Y. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when I find that out, it helps me then reorient the way I think, change some of the things we do, and we can then begin to break down those barriers. And I think just knowing that we want to do that, I hope is a positive affirmation, but it's really real. We want to be a community where folks of every ethnic background feel like this is home. This is family. I absolutely feel welcomed here. You know, and that brings up the whole idea. If we all take on the perspective, a Pauline perspective, that I'm the biggest sinner in the room, then I don't come at this conversation with, well, because I'm white and we are the predominant uh, race, if you want to use that term, who have been here at the seminary. Therefore, I have a lot to give you guys. That's kind of inherently... Uh, racist just because it, there's this almost inherent supremacy involved as opposed to that attitude that you just expressed to say, no, you know what, I can learn from anybody and I need to because I'm the chief sinner in the room. 
And it doesn't matter who's been here the longest. What matters is that we're under the blood of Christ. We've got to come and learn to from each other. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's just shift for a few minutes. Time's fleeting from us, and there's a couple places I want to make sure that we talk about. Um, I want to talk about integrating churches for a moment on that and get you guys to think about, out loud with me about this. So let's, let's say well, there's a lot of conversation about having integrated churches, multi-color congregations on that. So let's say that I attend a church, and I look out, and like I, you can even do this this morning here in our congregation, but let's say I look out, and there's 95% white folk, 5% black folk. Is there something wrong there? Is there something racist there if we failed? Let's flip it. I look out over my congregation, and it's 95% black folk. Has that congregation failed? Is there something wrong there? Is there something racist going on? Talk about what a church should look like color-wise as we think through this uh, ethnic and race diversities. Any comments on there? I want to hear from you guys. <laughs> well, I'll start since I always clean up. Um, <clears throat> well, see, I, I find it hard-pressed for the uh, to see the prescription in the Bible to force a integrated appearance. Uh, but I see the prescription for making sure that you tear down walls of hostility and you remove barriers to it happening. I think that it, some places it just does not happen and no one's mad about it. <laughs> in other places, uh, it doesn't happen because there are barriers in place that hinder it from happening and somebody is uncomfortable about it and they would feel like God visited if that barrier were moved and some natural cohesion would take place that's missing. To God be the glory when it shows that multicolored display of his differences rallied around the unity. Uh, but again, sometimes it's, it just does not happen. And people feel this weight that they have to try to configure it or make it happen. I think the way to allow it to happen and to be an advocate for it is to always assess is there anything that is inherently prohibiting it from happening organically or providentially? Uh, and I think that once we are known, known to be people who are on the offense of removing barriers and being inviting and welcoming in case that is going to happen, providing a climate and environment for it to happen, I think then we can celebrate when it happens and say God did it. I think there's a way to, for, for man to do it. I think there's a way to force it. Uh, but I think there's also a way to hinder it. And I just think we, have, we can't be guilty of hindering it. Well, if we're, if we're having a church, um, well, basically the goal, I think, of a local church is to show the Lordship of, of Christ over a particular area that's around it. And so if, you're, if your area around you is 95% black and 5% other, then your church is most likely going to look like that. And so don't beat yourself up you know, and go try to bust people in from a half hour away just so you can get some diversity in your church because that's not the most healthy way for those people to be in community because it's, it's superficial. You know, it's man forcing it to kind of use your language. But I would say if you are in a community that's, you know, a quarter black, quarter white, quarter Hispanic, quarter, you know, fill in the blank, um, and your church does not reflect it, I would say that it's almost like we're not, as we said earlier, um, actualizing the full power of the gospel to make it so in the church. And so, uh, and then once again, just looking at what we're doing in the church to see how we can go about um, making our home in the church palatable for people who are not like the majority who are there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, let me just jump and piggyback. Also celebrating moments that demonstrate a diversity that cast vision that, oh, it could be like this. So one of the, like, one of the, I think the, you know, the the good things about conferences is conferences are able to achieve a diversity often, you know, sometimes, a a lot of times, that churches don't have. And people feel like, wow, if only it were like this. Now, again, all of us like to babysit our areas of comfort. So we may like to go to a church where we are the majority because who doesn't like to be the majority? Who doesn't like home field advantage, you know? Uh, But... I think that when we, be, when we begin to appreciate the, the beauty of diversity, the way God has set it up, because he's done it strategically, 
I mean, we are not the same. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. So when you have those days where everybody's bringing meals, and you're like, man, you make a mean casserole. You make mean fried chicken. Yo, you make mean noodles. Yo, you make me. Now, it is what it is, you know. And uh, But we can appreciate it. And you're like, man, if I had it like this, you know, I mean, who doesn't change restaurant venues? I'm in the mood for Italian. And you don't go to Italian because you want fried chicken and waffles, you know. Not that I know of. Fried you know? chicken and waffles? Let me take this and give a shout out to this guy's wife makes the most unbelievable pound cakes. Oh, yeah. You need to buy them for her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they, they, they are otherworldly. Yeah, and he stole from me. Oh. He, he left the house. He came over to the house with pizza and she brought a pound cake. Next thing I know, the dude is putting it under his sweater. His wife gave it to us. Yeah, yeah. 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 She didn't tell you, you about it. tell me that, yeah, but that's what yeah, All right, yeah. we got just a few minutes left, so I want to ask each of you a question, and we'll, we'll close our time together. I want to ask you a question about hip-hop. I want to ask you a question about racist uh, Puritans, okay. and, and then I want to ask you to kind of give us a vision of your diversity. So let me, let me do this, this conversation this way. You do a lot in hip-hop, rap, music there. Help us to think. Recently, there's been some controversy, uh, a group of, of light-skinned Low on melanin dudes got up and talked about how uh, hip-hop's not a good thing. Um, tell us, think, think through with us about how to think about hip-hop culture uh, within evangelicalism. Yeah. Okay, you only got a little bit of time, so okay. see if you can do that. Excellent. Uh, okay, once again, we're talking about people who are unexposed, re- relatively unexposed, speaking as, you know, comfortably without the humility of, this is probably because I'm unexposed, uh, so they think they have it right, and that's where the outrage comes in. If you said it with a little more humility, people would say, oh, you don't know. Oh, man, let me just put you on, as we say. Um, but uh, I would say hip-hop. One of the things that we know is that if you really do a study on hip-hop and its origin, it actually had some noble uh, beginnings. It did. It was a substitute for gang violence. It was unsaved people's version of trying to at least counter gang violence and come up with a new way to battle, battle with your art, battle with your expressions. It was also the desire of a people who were marginalized, who didn't have money or the ability to go to the academy, found a way to make their art known to a public. It went mainstream. Mainstream means there's dollars. Dollars means it gets corrupted even faster than it would be if it were just grassroots. Fast forward. Christians who like it from a social uh, dynamic come and have a theological encounter with the Lord Jesus. The gospel changes everything. Ethics flow out of that. Then we start looking at our theology, our, our hip-hop. We say, man, some of this doesn't go together. We work through, like we're talking about now, the Bible sifting through our culture. We come up with a version that is both good but getting better. And it has bad, but that's being sanctified. We come to the church like, yo, you know, receive it, but only receive it so far as it lines up with what is common to us, our common Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I believe that we should embrace it, fan it in the flame, and apply this whole race context and conversation to hip-hop. I believe we should keep it accountable because some of the guilt makes you just sort of keep your hands off it, and then our sanctification doesn't happen as completely as it would if you held us to the fire that you hold all of us to. So, uh, again, hip-hop, tune in more for the next episode. I like it. (laughs) All right, so, Walter, a question came in that was related to this. Why is it okay for folks here at the seminary or any any other place to recite and honor slave-owning Christians who happen to be Puritans, people who had really good thoughts about God but owned slaves themselves? Now, you did your master's thesis in this direction, so help us think through that. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I guess to, to start with the humility piece, because if we can't uh, understand that we all have clay feet, then we're just going to start throwing darts at everybody, and then no one will ever have anything, you know, uh, or be able to say anything. So, but as, as far as, I mean, I, I wrote on Jonathan Edwards, uh, and also critiqued him with James Cone, which is a funny dialogue, but we can, <laughs> we, we can talk about that later. But um, essentially, I think that a person like myself, reading a person like Edwards, knowing that he had, he owned slaves. It, it really is a, um, a discipline of, of grace for me, making sure that I'm gracious to my brother in Christ. Because essentially what I came to understand is that when someone has a glaring, well, at least to us, a glaring blind spot, uh, their culture has 
made it so that they assume something to be so normal that they don't even apply the gospel to it. So Jonathan Edwards' father and his you know, brother and his you know, granddaddy and, and everyone who was somebody around him owned slaves. And so that's probably what he did and didn't apply the scripture to it because he just assumed that that's just the way the world works. And so um, I, I really see that in him as a, an area that he didn't apply the gospel, not necessarily a misapplication of the gospel because he just didn't do it. Um, what we can do is, is make sure that we are in dialogue with those who are different than us, you know, race, gender, nationality, and the list goes on of, you know, age and so forth, so we can point out those things in each other. So, so we can say, okay, the culture that you reside in assumes this. Well, you might want to rethink that because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and then I guess, lastly, before I'm done, I think this will give us humility, because I think Jonathan Edwards was a phenomenal exegete, phenomenal philosopher, theologian, and then and pastor, preacher as well. And so it, it, it makes me ask the question, what is it that my grandchildren are going to look at me and say, gosh, how can you be a Christian and he, and he did that? Mm. And so um, it, it really begs that question for me. So it really, um, as I read, you know, Puritans or even more contemporary, you know, figures who had kind of this who are a mixed blessing to people of color, if you will. Um, I really have to exercise, exercise that, that humility, but then ask that question to myself. Okay. Danny, we're, we're a little bit over, but I wanted to give you an opportunity before we finish today to just cast a quick vision. Why are you pioneering ethnic and racial diversity here at Southeastern? What's, what's your big heart? And then once Danny's finished, I'll say a prayer for us, and we'll dismiss on that. So. Because at its very core, it's a gospel issue. And if we don't see this rightly, then we run the risk of missing and misunderstanding the gospel. And growing up and seeing this from all sorts of different perspectives, it comes clear to me again and again and again where uh, racism and bigotry and prejudice is present is because there's a lack of understanding about the gospel. And uh, our Lord came to, as you read earlier, to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And as we like to say around here, so that uh, the church on earth will look like the church in heaven. And so I know we'll never get there perfectly, but we can always strive for it. And if we're doing that, I believe God will honor it and that he'll bless it and that we'll be pleasing in his sight. Excellent. Very good. For those of you who came today, we do want to recommend, we, uh, there's a couple PowerPoints they'll shoot up on the screen. We did on the back of your handouts too, eight books that we recommend that you all would take a look at and read on that. And if you have any questions for us, all of us would love to, to serve you in any way we can. Let me close this in prayer and we'll be dismissed today. Our great Father, we recognize that somehow in your wisdom, you put within our DNA as human beings the ability to have different skin tones. We ask your forgiveness that we would make that a divisive idea of superiority and inferiority. It's one of the stupidest things humans have ever done. So, so we repent of that. All four of us here and as a congregation today, we want to ask and really beg your forgiveness for being so incredibly dumb on this. And yet it's the gospel, it's, it's the blood of this man, Jesus, who was probably much darker than me, perhaps a little lighter than my other brothers here, but someone who came to die for the human race. And so under the blood of Christ now, we share. We're one, and we're seeking to see the world one for you, Christ. So may it be that we leave behind all these things that would entangle us and instead run this race with endurance that we might together Link arms for the sake of people all over the globe who need to know you. And so, Father, we call ourselves the chief of sinners, but we recognize that you are the Savior who brought us all to the place where we can find this oneness that's beautiful because we're one in you. So help us with this, God. Please help us with this. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. 
Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.